Oh, oh, I forgot to tell you, this is episode 69. Oh my God. Yes. We did it. We did it, boys. (laughs) Oh, the gays win again. (laughs) Somehow I knew you'd like that. Welcome to the Hybrid Pub Scout Podcast with me, Emily Einelander. We're mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing, and today's guest is Ruthie Hansen. Born in Burbank, California, Ruthie has been around the entertainment industry since she was a kid, watching her father storyboard for Disney films. She had her first book published at 19, with her most recent novel, Blood in the Golden Palace, premiering late 2021. Most of her books focus on queer romances though her upcoming novel steps back into her first real love, high fantasy. Ruthie is a 2019 cum laude graduate of CSUN's writing program and negotiated her first film option two years later through Golden Horseshoe Entertainment and director Paul Baker. The script, Hair of the Dog Diner, is a low-budget, survive-the-night werewolf script with a focus on visual effects. As for the future of her writing, Ruthie is spearheading a Kickstarter campaign for Ladies of Fortune, a show centered around the lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Though it's been a passion project of hers for years, Ladies of Fortune is only now gaining traction due to the popularity of the HBO sleeper hit, Our Flag Beans Death, and even involves one of the show's actors. Welcome, Ruthie. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Wait, 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 wait. I got wait. Introduce me again. Introduce me oh, again. Oh, okay. Welcome, Ruthie. Hi all. There we go. There we go. <laughs> what was that? That was that was Steve Bonnet walking into uh, a <sighs> Spanish Jackie's bar. Oh shit! Like dressed like an ice cream, just being like, "Hi all." There we I, go. I may be landed gentry, <laughs> but I'm delighted to be granted entry. There we go. I may or may not have memorized the entire fucking show. Anyway. <laughs> That's all right. I was, um, episode seven is kind of my comfort episode. So I watched that last night kind of okay. to prepare. So they it's, all, they all run together for me. Is that the fancy party? It's the oranges. It's the oranges. Okay. Cause, I, cause I'm a Jim and Olu shipper. So oh, obviously, yeah. obviously they're yeah. my faves. <laughs> you and anyone with eyes. Oh God, I know. <laughs> So every fanfic writer who comes on here um, gets the icebreaker question. What is your favorite ship? Okay. Not a joke. More than one is good. (laughs) Okay. Not a joke. This is the question I spent the most time thinking of because (laughs) I'm definitely like a smorgasbord of ships. Like ever since I was a teenager, starting with like Teen Titans and like Starfire Robin, that Mm -hmm. was my gateway drug was Starfire Robin. Um, so I will answer this twofold. I'll answer with the ship I'm obsessed with currently and then the ship that I've written the most of. So the ship that I'm obsessed with currently is the steady dynamic from Stranger Things. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I, it, I won't go into like spoilers or anything in case, because the show just aired so I don't want to you know in case you haven't gotten around to it but I I've come to realize that my ideal dynamic is like a normal dude and then like a goblin like that's kind of my perfect sort of and uh something about you know scrawny weird long-haired metalheads really really kind of uh, uh, get the lather going for that. So that's the ship that I'm currently, it's currently taking up residence in my mind. The one that I've written the most of is Majima and Kiryu from um, the Yakuza games, which I don't okay. know if you're familiar with them or not. No. So the Yakuza games are essentially like, take Grand Theft Auto, put it in Japan and lace it with PCP and you have the Yakuza games. <laughs> They are fantastic, especially if you like um, like beat 'em ups. Okay. Um, the story goes like the the Japanese mafia stealing a literal mountain of money 
and no one notices like it it becomes that oh I have they just like lift it with one finger and like you can hear the little like tingle keys walking away (laughs) it was like stuffed in an office like an actual literal (laughs) mountain of money it was like stuffed in a back room in an office in a little tiny fucking Japanese like and they just not only did they steal it but when it was revealed again, it was in the exact same formation of like the, so they just like airlifted it. Like they removed the roof, airlifted it and then brought it. It's a ridiculous game series, but it's very, very fun. Um, yeah. So that became my personality during the pandemic. And I, <laughs> and I wrote, I, okay. Within, <laughs> within six months, like five to six months, I wrote and created a 600-page ebook following these two characters from 1983 to 2019, and this is this was just me going like I was just six I would months. Just, yeah, I would just Holy play shit. the game and then I would write and then I would play the game and I would write. Um, and I like I did the whole thing. I like commissioned like artists for it. Oh, and, cool. Like, yeah, yeah. I like gave some of my pandemic money away to like all these fan artists that I love and. And uh, this is so fucking relatable. <laughs> Except I did like half as much. I, it took me like twice as much time as you, but still. <laughs> I get I get weirdly fast. Like when I, I'm almost a hundred percent sure that I am an undiagnosed ADHD because like when I Probably. cling to something. So okay, so we'll go into like um, the history of my fan fiction and stuff yeah. like that, but like. The most recent fan, like longish form fan fiction that I wrote um, was uh, the Fang and Claw series, which I'm still kind of writing, which is uh, what we do in the shadows, Viago and Anton and and that sort of thing. I wrote 160,000 words within a month. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) There was some dead Uh air there because my mouth just (laughs) fell open. (laughs) I, yeah, I, I, from, from early like may 5th to like june 6th or 7th is when i ended nightcap That's and wild. so about one hundred and sixty thousand words it, um oh god i get i get nuts i get nuts <laughs> when i like when i have a hyper fixation it i don't i don't end until i die um so i first followed you on twitter because you came out as a fanfic author um and i thought that was pretty brave because i'm uh, you know to actually put your name up there and like the screenshot of your ao3 profile (laughs) yeah (laughs) because like i'm the sort of person where like if you find my fanfic and realize it's me i'm like okay that's fine but like (laughs) that also means you find my alt twitter account and that's a little less fine But yeah. yeah. Um, so what made you decide to take that step? So this is gonna be a bit of a story time. And we're awesome. gonna we're gonna actually uh rewind back to when I was writing Nightcap, which was my big um Viago and Anton fic. So I had decided uh to you mentioned in the intro I have a Kickstarter going for a proof of concept for a pirate show. Um, and, uh, my friend Damien, who I've known for years, who I approached originally in 2017 to play the bad guy for, for this show, um, he ended up being on Our Flag Means Death as Father Teach. So he was, yeah, he was Ed's father and he got, you know, flung around by the Kraken arm and stuff like that. And he's genuinely like one of the nicest human beings uh, we used we met playing D and D in here in Burbank, and so genuinely like one of the nicest people. Um, where we had a couple of years where we sort of drifted apart because I was going to school and he was dealing with cancer for a little bit. Oh. He is fortunately two years out of like free of cancer. Yay! And um, and we reconnected kind of like during the pandemic and and updated each other on what we got going on and then you know our flag means death came out and uh, <laughs> the first time I watched the show when I got to that scene I was like drinking with my friends so I was like kind of drunk but I was like I saw you with the Kraken like I was texting <laughs> him while I was watching the show and um so he had a like a 
2,000 followers, something like that. Because he also does voice acting. He was, um, I believe, Harry Stone in uh, Call of Duty, mm. I think, if or Black Ops. One, one of the shooty games. I don't play the shooty games. <laughs> one but of the pew-pew games. One of the pew-pew <laughs> games. Yeah, so he's done, like, voice acting, and he's done, like, you know, smaller things here and there. Um, and he made a tweet where somebody had linked him to a page of archive that had his character in fan fictions Mm -hmm. and it's like you know and he took a screenshot of it and he tweeted it and being like oh my god look at this i'm in fan fiction like i'm a real actor now and he was (laughs) he was delighted like genuinely he was delighted he's like look it's you know people like my character enough to to put it and twitter ate it the fuck up like he got, he went from 2000 followers to like 5,000 followers. Like he got just this huge wave of love, very well-deserved also. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful human being. And, um, and I, I interacted a little bit with that thread and I got some trickling, you know, of, of people. Yeah. Um, now during all of this, you know, the, the Kickstarter was going, some people were kind of being directed towards it. And um, I, I was still writing Nightcap at the time. And during some of the uploads, we were going to do a live stream, me and Damien. And so I basically left a little note that I deleted once it was done. But like, I left a little note in my chapter being like, hey, like, if you want to support something cool that I'm doing, like, come to my Instagram on this this day and this time and and join us for a live stream and and that was really fun and then we ended up getting a massive three grand donation for our kickstarter wow like an insane and i was like who was this who was this and i found out it was one of my readers it was a fan fiction reader who she loved my work so much and she just had all of these savings and she's like I want to support something really cool and I fuck it I like cried at my desk I shit and I just kind of sat there for a bit I was like oh my god like people genuinely like I have books and stuff and like people like my books but I have a genuine audience Mm -hmm. that is here for just about everything that I've Mm -hmm. done and I was like okay and it's and then and then you know all the interviews came out with David Jenkins showrunner for our flag means death talking about like how much he loves and appreciates the fan culture Taika is very uh, verbal about how much he loves the fan art. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there is, and as someone who has been writing fan fiction for more than half their lives, um, that is a huge paradigm shift. Because when I was a teenager, you did not, <laughs> you did not connect your person, your, who you were to your fan fictions. Like you had to put up disclaimers so you wouldn't get sued right you know yeah um and it's i i kind of woke up and realized like oh my god we're in a much different world and so i just came to work one day and i was kind of bored at my desk i was like all right fuck it (laughs) and it just took on a life of its own and I was, I was sitting there like watching these thousands of, cause I would get messages also, like my DMs were open, still are. Mm-hmm. And I get messages from people. This is, I think the best, um, the best kind of consequence of this is I get messages from people who were inspired to write again oh, or who that. were inspired to like, or who like, weren't sure that they would be taken seriously as a you know as an original writer because they've and it's like that makes me so happy because one of the things that I I try to encourage as much as possible is for the production of genuine sincere art whether Mm -hmm. that is you know visual art whether that is you know audio art like podcasts whether that's writing like the world can be so fucking ugly yeah that any chance to get 
more joy into the world, no matter what that is, is if, if I can help create that, like I, I feel like I have done my job. I have career goals. I have financial goals. I have goals that I want to be in life, but also like on a personal level, I want to encourage people to write and to find their passions and to enjoy those hobbies and those passions. And even if it's just for yourself. Also having that tangible proof that you're really making somebody happy with your Oh my art God. It's amazing. Incredible. It's yeah. amazing. Cause that's, I just want, I just want people to be happy and chill and $3,000 is like the monetary equivalent of like a page long, um, quoting back to yourself, AO3 <laughs> Oh my God. It's, I, <laughs> I literally like messaged that person on Twitter. I was like, are you fucking sure? And she's like, yeah. Oh my God. I love it. It's, it's so good. Um, she, and she bought all my books and I was like, okay, mail them to me. Cause I'm going to sign all of them. And I'm also going to like, I have extra things that I'm going to like slip in and like as presents and, and send them back to you. It was just, I mean, it's been a wild, wild ride. And it's funny because like, um, I, I have PTSD from, from shit that I won't get into, but even though like 99% of the reaction was very positive, it was still incredibly terrifying Yeah, because it's this, it's this huge amount of attention that I just am not used to. Mm -hmm. And I was able to navigate it. Okay. But there were, there were a couple of moments when it was all happening where I was like, what the fuck have I done? Like, what have I done? Oh no, I'm never going to work in this town again. And uh, dreams coming true is scary. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm going to be that person. And I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. You're going to handle it just fine. I'll, I'll handle it. This is not 2012. This is not 2008. Like we'll be all right. Yeah. Um, can we talk about your books a little bit? Yeah, um, since sure. you made a little reference to him there. Um, so uh, since this is a uh, publishing podcast, I do like talking about what it's like to work with different presses. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that you have um, several romance books with GMS Books, which is a small press that focuses on LGBTQ books. Um, that is could correct. You, could you talk a little bit about how you found them and what it was like to work with them? Sure. Um, so again, this is going to be, we're going to go back a few years, but get get um, into it, get into it. (laughs) So I, (laughs) and this is, this just proves like how long I was on the gay pirate train, um, or rather the gay pirate ship. (laughs) Not take a sip of coffee. (laughs) I saw that. I was like, ah, um, so in 2010, I started doing a gay pirate web comic with a friend of mine who I had written the story with and we were doing conventions to like sell our stuff. And I got approached by a, Oh God, no, I got to go further. Hold on. I got to go further back. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. put a a pin in the gay pirates and we're going to go back. So my first, my very first book, my very, very first book, I wrote it when I was 18 and I got it published when I was 19 through um, their, they were kind of like a vanity publishing house. So it was like one step above self-publishing. Mm. Um, and I was very proud of the fact that I got published at 19, but it's, I'm not going to talk about the book because it was a book that I got published when I was fucking 19. And it reads <laughs> like a book that I wrote yep. when I was 18, 19. But like that, that's kind of what set it off. And, um, and then, you know, a few years after that, I started the webcomic and I got approached actually by a, um, a different publishing company, um, at the convention being like, Hey, like, we like your stuff. Would you be, would you be willing to submit a manuscript to us? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And so I wrote, um, I wrote like a little 110, 120 word novel in about a month and I submitted it to them and they just didn't like it for some (laughs) reason like they asked me to do a bunch of changes so I did a bunch of changes and they still didn't like it I was like okay whatever so I put the manuscript on the back burner and then I uh, like a year or so down the line I met a different publishing 
house while I was selling my comic books. And I mentioned, I was like, yeah, I have this manuscript, but I don't know if I'm going to do anything with it because like the publishers that wanted me to write it mm-hmm. didn't like it. And they're like, ah, send it to us. So that was less than three press, which was my second publishing house. And they actually contracted me and I had editors and all that stuff. <laughs> and I wrote um, the unscripted series. So unscripted act one and unscripted act two. Um, it is a little, I don't know if you are familiar with the BL pocketbooks from Japan. I've heard of them. Okay. The idea is most of them are, are gay and it's like, it's called a pocketbook because you literally, it's like a small book that you can put in your pocket and like read it on the train and stuff. And it's, um, it has a very distinct sort of casual kind of style to them. A lot of them are very um, contemporary. Mm-hmm. So Unscripted Act One was definitely written in that style where it's a little more goofy and um, the whole series sort of revolves around it. It revolves around an action star in Hollywood who's closeted and he meets and falls for his like super fan. Um, (laughs) It's a very like meet cute and very low stakes, uh, although someone does almost get hit by a car. So (laughs) Uh, low stakes for me. Um, And that the first book was definitely written in a much more kind of fourth wall breaky, very cute, very bubbly sort of style and then when I decided to write the sequel I kind of let go of the the attempt to imitate and I just sort of embraced my own narrative style and I I feel like the sequel is much stronger because of it um a big kind of running motif I have found like this is not intentional but I found a big running motif in my books tend to be discussing uh, social inequity, whether right. that's class, whether that's race, whether that's, you know, uh, gender and sex, whatever it is, because we live in a naturally inequitable world. And um, like, I can't, I cannot picture a world in which my books can exist where they're not affected by that, where the characters are not affected by, you know, what we have to deal with. And so the um the sequel because the the character ethan who is the star he's the action star is he's mixed race he okay. is indian and white and his um but because he passes quote unquote he gets these leading roles whereas his uncle who is uh, uncle nick who um started as an actor and then owned a theater company because he is very clearly Indian, like he gave up acting in the 80s because he was being cast as taxi drivers and terrorists and, you know, all these things. And so it's a look at that, but it's also a look at um, the invasion of privacy of celebrities. So the first book, the, the arc is them getting together the heavy in that one is Ethan's co-star who's just she's kind of a nasty like should have made it big and never really and now she's getting up there so now she's like fighting the clock and and that sort of thing and then the second book is the the heavy is a uh, a tabloid who is trying to essentially out Ethan um and sicking paparazzi on them and stuff like that so it's it's the idea of like once someone comes becomes a celebrity very often especially in this town like they're seen of as less than human because like their privacy is no longer theirs. It's, right. you know, they're an object. They're an object. Yeah. And, and um, so the, the second book eventually becomes um, him dealing with that. And also I, I do- dove into a little bit about um, this is actually inspired by uh, the press around Chris Evans when he was doing tours for Captain America and he talked about his anxiety issues Mm -hmm. and he talked about his you know he didn't like crowds and he didn't like doing interviews and things like that and and so I kind of uh using my own experiences with mental health I dove into the life of a public figure who from the time he was a teenager has had issues with mental health has had issues with um general anxiety Mm -hmm. uh disorder and general depression Mm -hmm. and uh and I felt like because I was able to ignore the parameters of what this 
book series started out as, which is like a an American BL pocketbook, right. I, I was able to sort of create a stronger narrative because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was less than three press. And then less than three ended up closing their doors uh, because small publishing houses, it's very hard to keep open. Um, and I spent the next couple of years going to CSUN. I got my uh, screenwriting degree. And during that time, I had decided to write a Western called The Railwalkers. Yes. And that is, um, it, that, was, that was the longest I ever spent working on a project. Um, like, so I will write a book in two, three months. This one took me five years which is insane for me. That's That's, longer. That's much longer, (laughs) but it was a lot of research. It was a lot of, like, I was very meticulous in a lot of the details. And this one is, it is a lesbian revenge Western. Yes. And the conceit (laughs) was, because, you know, when you get, uh, when you get a screenwriting degree, you have to go through cinema classes, which Mm -hmm. I loved. And part of the curriculum is you study American film american cinema and we spent a a good time you know talking about westerns Mm -hmm. western films and i grew up with westerns as well my dad's a big like john ford john wayne kind of fan and um so i was familiar with like the iconography and the trappings of of a standard western and i'm also a big history nut as well and one of the most fascinating things about westerns um as far as the disparity between the hollywood western like the real west was there were whole towns basically erected by women (laughs) because basically what would happen is during especially during the gold rush and the mining boom um there would be prospectors who would like gather in an area but they it would they would be living out of tents and they just wouldn't take care of themselves and they would just you know (laughs) and so these these women who uh, you know were starting to experience financial and personal autonomy for the first time um and i i say that specifically talking about the the white colonist settlers like (laughs) i'm I'm talking very very specific group um they decided to go out west and they're like there is a market here and so through sex work and through through other services they built towns communities um like town halls and hospitals and you know they established trade routes and things like that and so the west was kind of built by women the west was built by women in sex work like it's it's really a fascinating um history in fact wyoming is known as the equality state because before nationally women were given the right to vote all all white women in wyoming were given the vote like literally every, like it was widespread from the beginning. If you were a white woman in Wyoming, you could vote. Okay. And um, they literally did not join the South during the, um, during the civil war because the South wanted to take away women's right to vote. And they were like, no, <laughs> no, this works for us. Like, like, what am I getting out of this deal exactly? Yeah. <laughs> So what I wanted to do was not only focus on that aspect, but um, there are, the West was incredibly diverse um, as far as people who were immigrating, the freeing of enslaved peoples, um, also like the fallout from Native American genocide. Like there's a lot of, it's a really big complex history for, for people of color in America. Um, and so what I wanted to do is I wanted to focus on a cast. Uh, it's kind of a found family sort of setup where uh, you have kind of one person from each quote unquote forgotten demographic from the Hollywood Western. So the main character is a girl named Violet, who is she's one of those. I like to I like to frame it as it's a white feminist who goes from third wave to intersectionalism because she starts with good intentions. She has a good heart, but she sees the world very much in black and white. Yeah. Like she, there's a conversation in the book 
where she is talking to Linus, who is the, um, he is a, a black man from Alabama. And, and they're talking about the Civil War. And they're also talking about like the fallout after the Civil War. And uh, he mentions that his mother is still stuck on the plantation working for her former master, which is a thing that happened. It was, it was once they were freed, it's like, okay, cool. You get paid for your work now, but you get paid pennies on the dollar and you have to live in your old slave quarters and you have to pay us rent. It's, it, it was horrific. Yeah. Yeah. It was absolutely horrific. And so he talks about that experience. Um, and of course, I am, I am damn near clear as far as my background. I'm, I'm very white. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do a lot of research for this. And I had, I fortunately have friends and people close to me that I would, I would reference to, and I would ask questions of. And, mm -hmm. um, so they're having this conversation and he mentions that his mother is still on her old plantation, like working for her old master and Violet has a moment where she's like, well, that's not hold on no like the slaves are free like it's fine that's not like we won the, the war works. and it's fine that's not yeah that's not how it works <laughs> and um he goes into the details of like no this is what is actually happening so violet goes through a a metamorphosis and and sort of starts to understand things in a more complex way and then the um the through line why this is still a romance and not not just like yeah. a really heavy read is um she violet uh, it, it's kind of a coming of age story because violet discovers her sexuality uh through may who is the leader of the Railwalkers, and she is the um the daughter of the chinese railroad worker and it's they they fall in love and she kind of because what they do is they're they're assassins essentially they get people search them out uh, find them out and uh, pay them to kill people who are essentially too rich or too too white to, to be <laughs> held accountable for their actions and um and they go around you know administering justice administering justice yeah essentially <laughs> And she sort of joins them through happenstance. Um, she gets framed. She gets involved in one of their contracted hits and she gets framed for the murder. And so she has to run away. Um, I love and that. She, oh my God. It's, it was such a fun thing to write. So I was working on that. A lot of research, a lot of, you know, took five years. And then, you know, graduated was ready to start my screenwriting career and then the pandemic hit and I was like well let me finish this up it's like let me give myself a project so I finished up Railwalkers and during that time I was looking at um indie publishing houses and JMS Books had a um what do you call it a, a, a fast track okay for basically authors who um are previously published and like have books that they own the rights to because once uh less than three press closed the doors like i retained all the rights for unscripted right they're like so if you've been published before like we'll take you on and we can publish any new stuff that you have and so i made a deal with them published Railwalkers, and it has to date become my most financially and critically successful thing good like ever awesome. um i'm that hard work it paid <laughs> off, off. <laughs> it paid off it um got it got published in february of last year and i'm still getting royalties for it good which is insane yeah. <laughs> like i'm used to royalties being like here's four dollars great thanks <laughs> and then um after that because i cannot fucking stay still for more than 10 minutes i decided mm -hmm. to write my next book, which I fucking wanked out in seven months called Blood in the Golden Palace, uh, which is a much different, much different book than Railwalkers. It is, it's one of the few books that I have that's classified as straight romance, but I haven't written an, a solid straight character in over 10 years. And so they're both bisexual, so. <laughs> 
so it still fits their uh, parameters for it's publishing. It's still queer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it still fits the parameter. Um, and that one was, I basically, while I'm at work, I play a lot of YouTube to like, while noise. I'm doing mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, just to have noise. And one of the things that I like to do that's fun is I like to go down the rabbit holes of like the autopsy of the Fifty Shades books. Oh God. Because I hate those books. Uh... <laughs> and and I, I finally for like the fifth time I listened to Dan Olson's three-part hour-long a piece um kind of post-mortem on the series I have a funny story about why I know about that when you're done oh, okay <laughs> and uh and after I finished that I was like you know I bet I could do it better <laughs> and so on Google Docs at work in between assignments <laughs> I wrote this book in chunks like in like and I would just like <laughs> and I was like okay so we're gonna do I decided to set it in like a mobster yeah. set because it was it's a, a little bit 50 shades a little bit 365 and mm. then apparently a lot of beauty and the beast which I did not intend but <laughs> I I had a somebody reviewed it being like yeah this is more of a beauty and the beast retelling than a I was okay. like, hey, you know what I'll take it sure everybody loves that everybody loves it <laughs> and um and um and it, it's essentially a, uh, a crime boss like underboss so he's like the son of the crime boss mm-hmm. in this like it's like a mix of Chicago New York sort of situation and he is he runs the syndicate but he also on the side runs a club called the Golden Palace. Got to have something where to launder the money, right? Yeah, it's like a little <laughs> bit of a money laundering thing, but he keeps it very clean. And then his other secret life is he's, you know, he's a dom on the on the BDSM oh. scene. And he has his own little, he has his own little thing. And then the, the, the love interest, Penny, is this 22-year-old wallflower who likes to read and, you know, is a barista and loves to bake and just doesn't, you know, and, you know, obviously they, they meet and they, you know, all kinds of stuff. And that one was really fun. It was a lot of, it's very tropey, but it's tropey on purpose. You know, it's romance (laughs) and it's, it's very fun. And, and one of the criticisms I got was um, that like the, cause there's, two simultaneous plots there's the romance plot and then there's the mob plot and one of the critiques that I got was that the mob plot was too easy to figure out and I was like yeah that was kind of on purpose because of Angelo the main character is sort of an idiot (laughs) (laughs) have you heard of this thing called laughing (laughs) you should try it sometime I it was yeah no that was fun I want to write a sequel but it's not as it's not as popular as my other books so I have to like <laughs> I mean that's a, a quite a time investment to to prioritize the other one too <laughs> yeah I have a sequel plan for Railwalkers but I want to actually adapt it into a mini series oh right yeah so I have the I have the pilot written for like a five six part like streaming series um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to get that out before I write the se- the sequel because the sequel would be like one of those kind of like an interview with a vampire situation where like you have the modern day, you know, oh, the back and the forth temporary story sort of and then the the prequel story is May going into and it would be the backstory of May and how she became a raw walker and that sort of but um it's gonna be really fucking depressing. Yeah. So <laughs> I gotta let I gotta let the first book sort of marinate yeah marinate <laughs> for a few years and then i'll get into that um yeah and so that's that's it right now and then my current book which is not a romance but it does still have queer characters because again i cannot write straight people to save my life and it's a it's a high fantasy which is inspired by specifically things like the witcher and dungeons and dragons and and that sort of thing but the uh the the lore is it's very tolkien-esque but the lore is I kind of created whole cloth, like I created my own elves. I have my own language, that sort of thing. And it's more of a, um, it's more of an adventure. And Silva, the main character is, uh, is disabled and asexual. And yeah, she, her whole thing is it begins with her. So all elves in this world are born with magic. 
they're okay. they're born with magic. They are born with the ability to control magic. And she is the daughter of a high priestess. Not only that, she's the heir to take over this community when she comes of age. And when she's a child, she gets tricked and her magic is stolen. Oh no. So her hair loses all her color and she runs away and she becomes a criminal. Widely, she's considered to be sort of a blight. Um, mm-hmm. And she's a she's kind of a black spot on the, her family. Um, and all this stuff so it deals with that it deals with and then the the plot is in order to save her friends and there's like a horrible plague happening like in her homeland she has to go back and face her past and and all that stuff it's it's a big adventure um and that is currently being looked at by a publisher that i will not say because yeah jinx it but that one (laughs) that one is probably um because my i i have an agent now um which i got after i thank you (laughs) i got my agent after i um uh after i got my horror film optioned and then she's been helping me get it in front of although i've been i've been looking for an agent specifically for my books because I write screenplays and I write yeah. books. And so she handles my screenplay stuff, but she also has kind of been handling my, my book stuff, but I have so much work that I like want to find uh, an agent specific to so you know, yeah. my literature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's, and then, <laughs> and then, well, that's been shopping around. I'm kind of working on a, uh, on a contemporary, um, fantasy book as well i kind of started writing them at the same time and then night sparrow is the one that won out and that's the high fantasy one so okay so how are um the i guess i was going to say how do you manage or how do the skills cross over from books and script writing but it sounds like they're all kind of intermingled just the way you've been describing things i mean yeah there's there's a very big learning curve if you go from one to the other though um, I've been doing this for so long and like I've had, you know, I went to school for script writing that I, I'm able to transition between the two and cause script scripts are very specific. You have a, you have a timeline, you like, you have a time slot to fill. You have to hit certain beats at a certain time and you have to be incredibly clear because a script is not like a book where the reader is like enjoying it and like you can you know a script is a blueprint Mm. for a crew who you normally you have no idea who's going to pick it up like you don't know who you're dealing with until it happens but the script is for a crew and it's to basically plot out all of the nuts and bolts of the movie or the show or or whatever it is so you have to be incredibly specific, incredibly direct. You have to know where everyone is at all times. Um, it's it's much more technical than writing a than writing a book. And and the challenge that I that I had to overcome, and I see a lot of like young writers needing to overcome, is balancing the technical aspect of writing a script while still having a unique narrative voice because there is room in script writing to have a unique voice and to you know let your voice characterize things and places and and that sort of stuff you just really need to be succinct and that's that's really hard to do and it's it's fortunately a skill that i've been working on for the past decade um yeah so they've they've definitely helped i have I have one axe to grind. Oh, I have one, one axe to grind, and um, I am the only person in the world that this bothers, apparently. <laughs> so, when you are writing a script, all of the action is present tense because you are directing actors. You're directing actors. You're directing crew. Like, like uh, Karen walks in. Like it's that kind of thing. When you're writing a book. You're telling a story that has happened, mm-hmm. okay? Even in stuff like a journal entry, you're still recounting past events. Yeah. I get that the Hunger Games did it and did it very well, but the reason why it worked well with the Hunger Games is because Suzanne Collins has a history of television writing. She came from television. Okay. 
So she wrote her books in present tense and it worked for the action scenes. And those books became incredibly popular. But (laughs) I cannot stand narrative in present tense. I can't do it. I can't stand it. I've learned to live with that a little bit, but I'm the only one who has this opinion because I write both scripts and books, but it like, I, I want to tear my hair out when I see narrative written in, in present tense. Cause I'm like, you're not telling people what to do. You're, you're telling a story that has already happened. It should be past tense. So you anyway. see, you see all present tense as dictation. Yes. Or it's, imperative. it's dictation. It's, it's direction. <laughs> it's like, like, um, um, uh, I clutch my, I clutch my, my, chest in horror it's like you know you clutch duh this happened like yesterday like oh god damn i'm sorry i can't join you in your anger right now it's okay. I'm, I'm one of those people who i am everyone apparently <laughs> i am i am i have made my peace with the fact that this literally only bothers me <laughs> i, I understand the logic of it and why you might have that concern <laughs> I, 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 you know, this is, this is my ax to grind. No one else cares. I get that. (laughs) I mean, it's like when I tried to make one of my former roommates stop texting me in all caps, you know, it's like, cause to me, I'm like, you're yelling at me. You're yelling at me. He was, he was like, no, I'm not. It's like, no, you are yelling at you. And I'm just like, okay, fine. Like, this is my interpretation of the text. All right. Oh Lord. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so where did we leave off? I guess. I get. How has been been doing both of them kind of improved your career? Um, I mean, writing is like any skill. You need to practice. You need to um, like constantly be working and constantly be. Um, which is why I kept writing fan fiction even when I started writing original stuff because fan fiction to me oh my god I have another axe to grind but (laughs) so fan fiction fan fiction to me is the weight training room for your writer muscles like it is you are uh experimenting with stuff you might be exploring ideas exploring characters exploring scenarios and plot lines and things like that you're also going to get live feedback which is really great um yeah you you get a better understanding of like who like what certain audiences go in for what and and that sort of thing so like it's actually very very good as a tool for for writing now Uh I have uh (laughs) I have an issue with this has just become the like what grinds Ruthie's gears podcast but (laughs) it's fine (laughs) I have an issue with the fan fiction to publication pipeline mm-hmm. i have i have an issue and it's not the issue that people think because <laughs> usually when when you when people see a book is like like let's take um the love hypothesis for example okay. very famously it was a kylo ren and ray fanfic that got published into a book i have not read it so i will not speak to the quality i don't know but i know a lot of people love it um quality for me is not the issue in, in the fan fiction to publication pipeline. The issue for me is that fan fiction is one of the few um, crafts that is widely created for the sake of being created. And it is a very open space for amateurs to practice. Yes. And there's not a lot of pressure on those amateurs to write what they feel comfortable with and they'll find their voice at the time and you know that sort of thing so now we have all these fan fictions that are making the leap and you could argue that it started with 50 shades but there are things like city of bones i know was a harry potter fan fiction so this has been going on for a few years right when you have big fan fictions that make that leap now all of a sudden there's this undue pressure on young writers to be like okay, but it has to be this level or like, oh, I could, or they put all their eggs in one basket being like, this fan fiction will get me published and things like that. And it's like, no, (laughs) that's not, that's really not how it works usually. And I feel like more often than not, it 
discourages people from maybe experimenting at a level that that allows them to find their voice and i'm i'm gonna be i'm gonna be real raw here for a second okay 80 percent of fan fiction's gay as fuck 80 <laughs> percent of it is is hella yeah. gay <laughs> and 90 percent of the published fan fiction is really hit het cis straight like yeah. so it's not even really the public the published fan fictions aren't even really a good sample of the fan fiction culture. No. So it's not even a good representation because it's not <laughs> a one-to-one. So I have problems with that and I have problems with, so and to be clear, I do not have a problem with writers getting money. I absolutely <laughs> do not have a problem with writers getting money. I like I money. I think writers <laughs> should be paid more money actually. Yes. Yes. Um, I just, I fan fiction has always been that kind of open door to discovering your skill and your voice as a writer and now with all of these published works starting from fan fiction there's kind of an un unneeded pressure on these young writers you know and on also there's a lot of influence as well you know people kind of copycatting what they think will get them published and when that works now you have a really saturated market of kind of the same story over again. And I, I recently saw this thing on Twitter and this is oh, this like, oh God, knife to the heart. There is, I don't know if she is an editor or if she is working in a publishing house or something like that, but someone posted something to the effect of a lot of publishers now are basing their acquisitions on book talk. Oh, God, and yeah, on trends that. in book talk and it's like she's no! actually a big uh she's actually a big publishing blogger i'm like in the discord for that oh, publication God. and she had this whole thing of like let me explain myself here and yeah. blah 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 i have i like i have an issue with that but i don't think it's not true like i don't like it but i think that it's there's truth to it just if sure. we're talking about the way that publishers think because um, it's still a business and I get that aspect, but it's like, it's not historically a very um, risk taking business because there's so little margin for a publisher. And so yeah. it's like, I'm just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Cause I know that the people like it and it's been proven on book talk or it's been proven on AO3 because look at all these readers. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. then they get into these ruts of being boring. And that's part of why it's taken so long for people who are not white upper class to be published or to work in publishing. Yeah. Cause it's like, these are risks I am not willing to take. And yep. I think this is just another per permeation, permeation, iteration of it. <laughs> But yeah, there's more to it than that, obviously. And I agree with like all of the different dimensions of the takes, but it's, it's just kind of one of those eye roll, like, yep, yeah. that's how this shit works situation. It's just, there are so many weird, cool, like stories out there to be told, like, but it's, you, you have, when you go with the standard formula every single time, you're going to get the standard book every single time. And I, I understand why they don't. Um, but boy, do I wish that publishers would take more risks. Me too. I, I really do because we get some amazing stuff when they do. Let's, let's uh, skip to ladies of fortune. Sure. Why don't we, why don't we talk about <laughs> ladies of fortune now? <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. So ladies of fortune is uh, I, I, wrote it, wrote the first draft in 2017. I have been obsessed with the golden age piracy um, since I was a teenager. I'm a big history fan, that sort of thing. And um, two of my favorites are Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who are real pirates and they're two of the most infamous female pirates of the golden age. Um, and they have shown up in other things, but they are always side characters. Mm -hmm. They're always kind of delegated to, you know, side plots and things like that. And their story is fascinating. Their story is, is wonderful. Do you know anything about that? I don't. Okay. Tell us. So Anne Bonny was Irish gentry 
who um, she basically abandoned her husband and her comfy life in Ireland. I do know yeah. her. I know. Yeah. Her. I know the, yeah. The other. Yeah. So <laughs> she she basically met Calico Jack Rackham, fell in love, and was like, "Yo, I'm out." And she she bounced, went to the Caribbean, and like became a pirate and became one of the most fearsome like sword fighters of the cool. era. Um, and then Mary Reed uh, w- became sort of her, really her soulmate was, they were, they were like this. And um, Mary Reed very famously dressed as a man. Huh. Now, the thing you have to, if you know anything about Anne Bonny, know that she was very comfortable being a woman. <laughs> she would actually fight with her shirt off to distract oh, her enemies. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she wanted them to know that they were being killed by a woman. So riddle me this, Batman. (laughs) What cis woman dresses as a man when your best friend is going through her hoe phase? (laughs) I don't even know how to answer that. Yeah. (laughs) The answer is no cis woman. Thank you very much. I'm feeling some kinship right now, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, there is zero reason why (laughs) mary reed would be cisgendered Mm -hmm. when she's like you know what i'm just gonna just gonna wrap up my titties no reason no reason (laughs) i don't need these i don't need these (laughs) they're just in the way they're just in the way uh yeah so the idea was to kind of hinge the story on that of their relationship but also like mary reed's gender identity and and sort of her coming into her i'm using her but because uh, no one used because no one pronoun yeah exactly um but yeah like her coming into her own gender identity and uh in particular i am because we uh started the kickstarter and we got insanely funded we are now almost at eight thousand dollars at from a fifteen hundred dollar like goal (laughs) yeah um but in particular i know that when i someone actually asked about like how are you going to be because i talk a lot of game about representation in the golden age because like 80 percent of pirates were people of color Mm -hmm. so somebody actually asked me like how are you going to be representative of these these backgrounds and and um and uh, uh identities in the show and for for mary like there are certain characters that like we know that Anne bonnie was an irish redhead right okay fine we know that benjamin hornigold who is da- who damien is playing is a you know a, a white british guy and that's very indicative of his character because he's former british navy and then he becomes a pirate and um but with characters like mary for example we know that mary was poor and we know that mary was english that's it that's what we know so what i want to do not only do i want to cast a non-binary actor yeah um to be more representative but i would love to cast a non-binary actor with either persian or turkish ancestry Oh, okay. because things that uh one of the things that history lessons kind of gloss over was during like the 1500s 1600s there was a lot of trade between the british empire and the ottoman empire mm-hmm. in fact um you could even argue that the shakespeare play othello was based off of the tensions between uh people from the middle east and people in you know western europe um England was also a a big cultural melting pot so I would love to not only cast a non-binary Middle Eastern actor but I would love to cast uh speak to like work with that actor and develop uh, an arc because ideally we would want five seasons because Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed um their career lasted about five years so like one season per year and I would love to do an arc that deals with the fallout of British imperialism, specifically in relation to Mary's upbringing okay. and her and her cultural identity and, and things like that. And I would want to work with the actor and work with, you know, what they think um, uh, uh, the, the, the plot line should encompass and like work with that. So, um, yeah, 
where was I going with this? <laughs> um, I was just asking you about what it was going to be. Yes. Okay, <laughs> so cool. I think, I think we got there. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, so it is a it is a show about Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And uh, they are they are fascinating characters in history. And um, it's it's also uh, I mean, it's a big swashbuckling pirate show like it's a big epic show but sword fights yes titties. sword fights titties <laughs> some ass in there Woo! um oh yeah and uh and we started the kickstarter we decided to launch the kickstarter me and damien uh june the first because i was like hey it's you know what it's the start of pride month and then of course uh our flag means death renewed yep. the same day and it's like yeah. that's not a sign <laughs> like i don't know <laughs> um yeah we all knew they were gonna do it on the first day of pride month though oh yeah us along like that oh yeah (laughs) do you have anything that you would like to say to aspiring writers whether they want to get into film or tv or just write books um so a couple of things one keep fucking writing just keep going um write every day if you can no matter what it is like just keep writer's block sucks the what I like to do for writer's block is I have a million projects going at once. So I will jump from one thing to another. Um, keep writing and be open to notes. So if you want to, if you want to just write for yourself, fine, great. But if you want to be published, if you want to get into film, get into television, that sort of thing, you are going to get notes. You are going to get uh, requested changes. You are going to get criticism. And you have to separate yourself from your work. You have to separate yourself from your work because so many, let me, let me tell you a little anecdote. So when I, um, for those who don't know what an option is in Hollywood, right? basically you write a script and a director will come to you and be like, hey, I really like your script. I, and they rent out the rights to shop it around um, for a, a certain allotted time. So like, okay. for example, my werewolf script got optioned for about 18 months. Okay. And, okay. and they pay like a small fee at the beginning and then every renewal, the fee doubles. So like, so, as they try to sell it, they're paying more and more to- Correct. So it, it incentivizes them to like, sell fast yeah um so while we were kind of so he didn't option it immediately he contacted me he really liked it but he wanted to spend a couple of months on rewrites Mm -hmm. and I was like cool great let's do it you know I I took his notes and I and I did the thing and then we would meet occasionally to for him to give me notes and to work on the script and every time we sat down to for him to give me notes he would always preface it with, okay, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. Or I don't want you. I was like, honey, I'm fine. Like, just yeah. tell me the notes. Like, yeah. cause he's so used to young, uh, like green writers being upset or defensive yeah. or things like that. Know that if someone is giving you a note, if somebody is giving you a criticism, they're giving it to you so that you can make your thing better. Yes. So that you can make your work better. It is not a personal thing. Now, granted, sometimes people will give you stupid notes. Yeah. And it's up to you at your discretion to like be like, no, this is dumb. It doesn't make any sense. Or this, you know, does make sense. Um, you you really have to kind of let your ego go and really look um at what they're saying in a in a kind of a utilitarian mindset. It's yeah. like, okay this is a product. What bits is this product missing to make it the best product it can be? And what, you know, what do I need to add? What do I need to take off? And the working with Paul was great because like it became the strongest script it could have been by the end of the rewrites. And uh, we, I actually, during one of our rewrite sessions, uh, like halfway through conversation, I like, got hit with inspiration for a, for a specific death. And I like, my eyes went wide. I was like, Oh my God, I gotta write this down. So like (laughs) be open, be open to notes, be open to fixing things. Um, especially if you want to work in the entertainment industry. 
yeah. like books you're a little more you've got a little more agency but um when you're writing a script it's it's very collaborative so you need to you need to be open to criticism and to, into notes so I love that and I you know I'll I'll throw my agreement in there as well <laughs> <on> my experience <laughs> because I I think what has made me comfortable with that is just all my editing experience mm. because I know that when I'm giving notes as an editor I'm not feeling malice at mm -hmm. all I'm just like oh well this is missing or this could be made a little better and that's why we kind of explain as we go in the comments like what our reasoning is but you know it makes it so now that when people give me notes I'm just like okay thanks cool yeah yeah, yeah. okay thanks that's all you have to say even if you're not going to take the note even yes. if you know that the note is stupid and you're not going to take it just say okay thanks I had a I had a note I have I have had a couple of notes like that by usually by other writers so like not even by producers <laughs> or directors but like other writers who be like uh oh, maybe you should combine these two completely different characters who serve yeah. completely different purposes to like cut down on the runtime of like a 110 page script it's like thanks but no, but thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Noted. Noted. Thank you for your input. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's up to your discretion, but like, and, and also, and this is just, this is just a, um, this isn't even a piece of writing advice. This is a piece of like, if you're going to be in the public eye, um, understand that you are part of the product. Like, unless you make it big as like a ghostwriter and you don't want to have anything to do in the, as like a public figure, like you need to understand that now more than ever, who you are is going to dictate how people receive your work. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to be, tr so try and be humble also try and be kind this is a very rough world that we're living in like everybody's fucking going through it everybody's everybody's taking drugs for something so just like try and several um, <laughs> this is a this is a reminder to take your medication <laughs> stay hydrated stay hydrated yeah so just try and be kind try and be humble and and understand that you know people are people are going to a lot of times people are going to judge your work based on you. So mm -hmm. try and try and keep that in mind and, you know, try basically don't be racist. <laughs> don't be, don't racist. be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> there you go. Don't be a dick. <laughs> All right. With that, where can people find you online? So they can find me, uh, Ruthie writes 91 on Twitter. Uh, I basically live there now, so you can, <laughs> uh, my, I'm giving away my my archive of our own name. You can find yeah. you can find my fan fiction under the bobble hat. Um, <laughs> I, I've I put a hold on my fan fiction at the moment just so that I can focus on ladies' fortune and stuff like that. But I I have a lot of shit. <laughs> I have a lot of shit to go through, and uh, and you can also find my personal website, which has all my stuff, uh, ruthiehansonwork.com. So there you go. Great. And you can find us at hybridpubscout.com um, on Twitter at hybridpubscout on Instagram at hybridpubscoutpod, um, you know, hybridpubscout on Facebook, but I do nothing there because it sucks. Um, <laughs> find your favorite uh, podcast app. Give us a five star rating and a nice review. And if you don't want to do that, just don't do it at all, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for coming on, Ruthie. Thank you for having me. And thanks for giving a rip about books. Oh, yeah. <laughs>